Let's turn to our scripture. Will you hand this out for me, please, Eric? This is the text for today. Okay, I made a joke earlier, and, and it didn't work. It wasn't funny. Most of my jokes aren't funny. Most of them are dad jokes. So, But I, I was quoting a song, the, 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 the old lyrics. My, my faith is built on nothing less than Schofield notes. I remember the, uh, I remembered the reference. You'd get this, Gina, right away. Schofield notes and scripture press. Okay, the reason I bring it up, is, uh, there's a reason why I want to bring this up right now. And the reason I want to bring it up is that we, um, I want us to, that, you don't get that joke because you don't have my experiences, right? You don't get that joke because you don't have my experiences, my, uh, the experiences I had of, uh, of the church many years ago. You don't get that joke because you're removed from some of the culture that it came out of. Well, I face the same challenges, we all face the same challenges when it comes to the Bible, right? There's, there's even jokes we don't get that are in the Bible. And uh, because, uh, because of the cultural gap between us. So we're, we're turning today to Isaiah 61 to learn what it can teach us about worship. Because we're in a series on worship. That series will wrap up in another week. And one of the things I've been excited about doing is mining and searching the, the, the scripture for uh, examples, for words about worship, for, for what the prophets and what Moses and, and what, the, what the poet, uh, the great poet David, what they thought, how they processed worship, what they thought of it. And I'm hoping, and I've been hoping, and I, I, I'm a more than hope. Now I'm going to go beyond that. Like last week, for example, we talked about practicing wonder, learning how to practice wonder. The necessity of practicing wonder by seeing the scale upon which God works and exists and who he is and his greatness. So I did that this week. I don't know if you did it. I did it. And it had an effect on me. It it had a visceral, emotional, spiritual effect on the worship of my God. And so as we contemplate him, as we look at him, as we look upon his love or his person... I think the same thing will happen. Now, now we're going to Isaiah 61. Like I said, it's removed from you culturally and in time. It was written in a different language to a different culture. And Isaiah is, is here in 61 going to deliver one of his um, more glorious speeches. In fact, this glorious, the prophet would be like a preacher uh, in the ancient world, preacher-poet. And what they would do, they crafted these messages calling people to know God, to return to the worship of Yahweh, the I Am. We're going to turn to, we're going to read Isaiah 61. But I I wrote, I drew something up here. Because Isaiah 61 stands in a rather unique place in the Old Testament. Why? Because of how Christ reads it. You see, Christ takes this text in his first sermon. He's preaching in his hometown. He takes this text and he reads it from a scroll. As he concludes reading it, he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, we're going to read this text and there's three different audiences I want you to think about. The first audience is Isaiah in his context. And this was a message that was alive to him. 
But as he was given this message, something magically beautiful happened by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, I hope you understand, you, you came to a church today, and we believe in an unembarrassed supernaturalism. I am unembarrassed to announce to you that 750 years before the advent and coming of Jesus Christ, a man in a reverie of vision and beauty and poetic majesty began to describe what that person coming would do and be. What sort of person he would be. What sort of work he would accomplish. That person, Jesus Christ, 750 years later, read this text. Jesus read the Bible. It's an odd idea. Jesus read the Bible. It seems like he read the Bible like it was his. And I suspect he did that because it was. He reads it and he appropriates. He takes this text and says, it is about me. It is for me. It describes me. It will describe my ministry and work. It is written for me. So Christ, Isaiah says it. And then Christ, 750 years, takes it. And now we, 2,000 years later, are going to read it. And we're going to own it. I hope. As a story to us about what Christ brings us and what our worship will do and what worship can do. All right, so, all right, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to read. Now, a few notes as I read. Did you see how I have spaces in the lines? I, you know, some of you know, uh, well, most of you know, our guests, I'll give you a heads up. I take out all the verse, verse labels. Verse labels were created in the 15th century. They don't have anything to do with the original Hebrew. And therefore, they are superfluous. And they're really, I think, an obstacle to us reading the text well. If you look at the gaps, I put a gap in between in my versification and translation. Why? Because each gap represents a change in voice. The first one is all in the first person. I have come. I swear to God has anointed me. Then it slips into a different voice. It slips into a different voice. And the second voice is um, they. It's in the uh, third person, plural. Then it goes to God's voice in line 31 and then in 43. Oh, I'm sorry, 23 and 29. It's, second, it's third person and second person plural. It goes back and forth. But the voices change. And, and I want you to pay attention to that because there's a, the, the, these, these poets, these poet preachers probably may well have acted this out. Because this is a bit of a dialogue diorama, but I'm just going to read it today. Sometimes we read responsibly, but I want to read it. And I want you to pay attention to those voice changes. And if you are bored while I'm reading, you can try to understand where I'm going with this message. Okay. All right, let's, let's read it. You tend to the reading of God's word. The spirit of the Lord, the I am, is on me. Because the I am anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to put back together destroyed hearts. He, to proclaim freedom to slaves. The opening of the prison to people stuck there. To proclaim the year of the I am's favor. The day of vengeance of our God. The comfort all who mourn. To give to those who mourn in Zion. To give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the, the clothes of praise instead of a dull spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the I am that he may be glorified. They will build up 
the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers, and you, but you will be called the priests of the I am. They will speak of you as the ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you will boast. Instead of your shame, you, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they will rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they will possess a double portion. They will have everlasting joy. For I, the I am, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring will be known among the nations. And their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge them. That they are an offspring the I am has blessed. Oh, I will greatly rejoice in the I am. My soul will exult in my God, for he has put on me the clothes of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, and as a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord the I am will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let me pray. Father, may that same spirit that anointed Isaiah and that rested on your son Jesus and equipped his ministry anoint and fill every person in this room to hear the good news. Father, if I venture to speak and you're not here and the spirit does not fill, then what we're doing is pointless. We ask you to create the worship you seek in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I developed a, this, this opening four points here. They're, they're fairly abstract. I'll read them to you and, and the argument that I'm making. I want to take this abstraction that we learn about worship and I want to bring it to bear with the seven images that he uses. You see, the poet, the prophet, is not a really, it doesn't do theology like we do. It's more practical and immediate and homey, sweetly homey in, in, the, in its metaphors. And that's kind of, I want to explore that because I think that's where we really get some, get some benefit. But let's begin with the abstraction. Let's begin with the beauty of worship. Because if you don't, you heard it. But one of the most, things that I, how do I reach into this for you? How do I reach into this for your conscience or for your mind or for your intellect? Because do you hear this? God is seeking worship, but then he tells us he creates it. So what does he do? What is, what is the story here? What is happening? If our God is actually seeking worship, seeking worshipers the way Jesus says, and Isaiah anticipates it, Jesus owns it, we look back at it, okay, Chris, but if God is seeking worshiper, he creates the worship of Christ. And, and so we find ourselves living in, in, in what the eternity of God does for us. And what I mean is it does this. And this is Romans 11.33. It says, for of him and through him and to him are what? All things. Everything. Either goes to God, returns to God. Is of, 
And this is worship. And worship is something that comes from him as a gift to us. And if we would worship in this city, it will be a gift from God. It will not even be the oomph or creation of our own efforts. It will be because God has ordained it. He has chosen it. What, what, what do we look at? What does God's sovereign choice mean? What is God's sovereignty? It's his love language. It's the way he loves. It's, he loves with the full intensity of his eternity and choice. Praise him. There is nobody like him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. God seeks and creates the worship of Christ. Ha! Now, obviously, Isaiah thinks he has a part in that. You've anointed me. And, and, and there's, we were a part of this, but... I want to get in here. Just walk with me here. Walk with me here because there's something beautiful about God's love right here. Sometimes the Bible talks about God choosing to love out of his mere good pleasure. Have you ever heard that? Like his mere pleasure. I don't know if you can you see it. All right. When you create something you don't need, what is it? When you create something or love something that you don't need at all, you have no need for it whatsoever, you actually, it won't help you live, it won't, have, it won't help you breathe, it won't, you can't eat it, it's, it's absolutely unnecessary for your well-being or continuing before God, right? We would call that a luxury, right? I mean, anything that we, anything that we think we can have, and, and that's what, what hits me. What hits me as I look at us, as I look around you, as I look at us doing this worship, is that we, we, are, we are God's luxury. There's no other way to come to it. He pays a price beyond, beyond prices in order to afford us his love. He sacrifices his own son. But the, even beyond that, the initial moment that he would create you or me, why? Why would he create something he doesn't need? It's because of a luxurious love, you see. That's the only explanation. You are the luxurious love of God for himself. <laughs> I, I want to get in on that. <laughs> How about you? How do we get in on that? How do we get in to this impenetrable, as it were, infinite knowledge of God unfolding in space and time as he has unfailed, as he has as revealed, right? I want to get in there. How do we get in there? For he creates, that's what he seeks. Ah, this worship happens by the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled. And so what our attitude is in worship is this. Father, give us worship. It's this constant requesting, seeking his work and his answer, his activity, his motion, his filling. It is God-centered. It is not about entertainment. It's not about what you're seeking or your comfort or you like the song, you like that instrument. Let me, as I've encouraged you before, a wicked generation. And I say generation, I don't mean millennials. I mean everybody who lives and acts and breathes with the same life and attitude and worldview. And it's all of us together. And a wicked generation, a wicked generation looks for a worship experience and seeks for it. And I don't think anything's going to be given to it. What we need is the Trinitarian anointing, the Holy Spirit 
will deliver to you finally the knowledge of Christ that you have hungered for. See, many of you have been isolated from God and have been unable to understand either his beauty, his freedom, his joy, an oil of gladness. What oil is this? Have you felt it, tasted it? Do you know it's touch and fall? If you don't, it is because the Holy Spirit is not delivering to you Jesus. And if we don't become a Holy Spirit-filled church, it's in our worship, it was in our, every week we cry out, when we confess our sin, what does he write? Because I asked him to write it. Holy Spirit, fill us. Holy Spirit, fill us. We are a reformed church in the Presbyterian Church of America. I believe in nothing but the election of a sovereign God. So therefore, I need the Holy Spirit, and we need the Holy Spirit to act for anything to happen. Praise Him. <laughs> Praise Him. Because He's given this stuff away for free. Because that's the next point. What does the Holy Spirit deliver? The good news preached. And of course, we need the word. He knows he's anointed, and we use the word preach. I think it's there in line, yeah, line four. That this is about, and this is created by God for himself, by the presence and anointing of the Holy Spirit into a completely spiritually transformed situation where I speak words of life. I say, Jesus died on a cross for sinners, and you hear, and you know if the Holy Spirit's here, he died for me. That is what atones for me. That is blood for me. That's an eternal God's love for me. And your ear is attuned, and your heart, be, and don't you see? <laughs> Look at line 43. Look at line 43. I will greatly exult in the Lord. What is happening to Isaiah in his own message? He is the minister, he is the object of the comfort of this truth for himself. He is saying, I'm preaching good news to the poor. The brokenhearted. The faint of spirit. That's me. Praise. <laughs> I am the object. It's this wonderful turnabout in the text. As he says, I'm preaching good news for the poor. In the moment he, he's preaching, he suddenly goes, wait a second. This includes me. <laughs> and he begins then to what? To rejoice in the clothing of righteousness he has. <laughs> He's so excited that this is true. It's where the good news is preached. What is the good news? Jesus loves sinners. And if you have the Holy Spirit, and the first time the Holy Spirit comes, I remember the first time the Holy Spirit came to me when I was sitting in church. You just know it's true. The Holy Spirit reveals it. And the beauty of God's love comes to your soul. What happens? It changes everything. We need to worship. Praise Him. As I have been excavating the scriptures about worship, I am becoming increasingly, almost alarmingly aware that the call, the need, the drive, the anointing to worship created by the Spirit as I grab the good news of the gospel is this worship that is how I fight my battles. Is this worship that equips me for holiness? Is this worship that changes things? Is this worship that makes me love my wife? Is this worship that anoints me? Is this worship? <sighs> Praise Him. These are a lot of abstract ideas up here, right? Of him and through him and to him are all things. It happens by the Holy Spirit. 
But then what, does, what, what are the images? What are the, and I put the line numbers next to them. Because the images are where it comes home. Did you hear all the pastoral garden images? Did you hear them? The, all these images are going to be planted like a terebinth, like an oak, like a, this planting of the Lord. A planting. What does it tell us about worship? We've learned so far. What does it tell us about this abstraction? There's a beautiful organic quality to worship. There is. There's something, it, it, when worship becomes manipulation, it can be enjoyable, like, like any good concert, any good experience, but that worship that God creates, it's, more, it's not affected by season or shade or sun. What is it? It's not affected by circumstance. What is it? It's an organic upwelling. It's what? The reason you worship is you can't help it. <laughs> and what's this? It's because it is what you must do. It is because, you know, and I look, when you look at a heaven, I love this image of the poetic image that a heaven, heaven is like, like you can almost see the trees are shaped to reach to heaven. I just love it. Everything praises him. And this organic idea, it, you know what it gets at? It gets at the crass, manipulative nature of a lot of our worship. We want to worship created by him. That is, that is, yeah, that comes from the soul and the heart that God makes. Mm. This is the kind of worship I'm excited about. And so we kind of get, you know, we get, all right, so we're reaching in. And we're, and you know another thing about this? What's organic implies? Things take time. Uh, sometimes uh, we like worship. Maybe take, check, a mark, check a mark or, or to accomplish something. I want you to hear something here, this organic pastoral image. You know why you come to you know why you come to church every week? Because if you don't water the plants, they die. <laughs> it's just like that simple. Like, it's such simple idea. If you don't water the plants, what happens? They don't. That's why our plants are dying, honey. You're not watering them. And so, and so something here. You see how it reaches in? the worship, to knowing that this is the worship that God creates and plants. What's the second image? In lines 9 and 10, Marmite. Can you believe that Marmite was used in the 8th century B.C.? No, of course not. Uh, has anybody ever had Marmite? Yeah, it's really an evil substance. It's some sort of yeast spread that English people eat, and of course, it's English cuisine, so it should tell you everything anyway. But, uh, but, What's Marmite? Marmite actually had a had a had a uh, had a slogan, had a advertising campaign. You'll either love it or hate it. <laughs> it's disgusting. You're going to hate it. But, but, but some people love it. It's like a it's weird. Isn't the gospel the same way? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what's the next line? The day of vengeance of our God. What is worship? You'll see it. People will come in here and they'll leave. And they won't come back. You know, worship divides. It's either an odor of favor. Like, wow, we have discovered the eternal God and all of his love. It's here available for us now. Let us taste it, eat it, drink it, and praise him. Mm. Other people go, those people are crazy and that's a cult and I'm getting out of there. <laughs> those people are nuts. I can't believe they believe that. We are either the odor of life fresh garden or we're what we stink like death 
worship, this worship that God seeks and creates, because it's created by him, it doesn't look like the world. You see, since it's not created by other humans, it doesn't, other humans, when they meet real worship, don't like it. Or, conversely, they want it. <laughs> but it's one or the other. Don't be afraid. So it's Texas clothes. Oh, I love it. Look, I, let me tell you something. You know, look, get your worship shoes on. I'm serious. This is, the reason I did this, look, the reason this is so much fun is that's, this is image that it's so earthy. It's so, it's, it's, it's about socks. Yeah, I'm not going to take my socks off. Do you have your worship socks on? Do you have your worship clothes? Why this homey image? It is the image of what is essential and habitual and daily for every single person in the world. <laughs> God loves this. God speaks in a way that little kids can understand. This is what my body is like. This is what my salvation is like. It's like crackers and wine. Do you get it yet? Okay, maybe you don't get it yet. This is what my worship is like. It's like putting on clothes. Do you get it yet? Like this picture. These, are, these images are all borrowed from the most common occurrences in our daily life. We snack, we eat, we drink. We put on clothes. God is saying, make me and my worship that core. Make it that core. Dress yourself in me. How many of you go out? Look, I'm going to follow something. I got to put my shoes on. <laughs> um, remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? And the emperor's walking naked down the street, and everybody's telling him how good he looks. And, and he's really just having clothes on. Don't you feel like that's most of the church? Look at us. We're, we're clothed in beautiful buildings and programs. And, but don't you just want to go, I think you're naked. There's something here. Peter, I need you to do this for me. If you see me walking around naked, you need to grab me and talk to me. Thank you. Well, what am I really asking him? I'm not asking him to watch, but I'm asking him to pay attention as to whether I am dressed in the worship of my Savior. And when I'm not, what should you say to me and what should I say to you and what should you say to one another? Get your clothes on. Get your worship duds on. You, I dress for climbing. I dress for a workout. I dress for certain occasions. I dress nicer for church or I dress nicer for this or nicer for this. I, or I dress as my dear wife instructs. But whatever it is, however, however it is, I, I do dress. I dress appropriately. Oh, do you hear it? Oh, do you hear how Christ, do you hear how God wants to call you? Oh, do you hear, you know, by the time Isaiah starts getting excited in line 43, what's he excited? I've got the clothes of salvation. Yeah. And what a pair of duds those are. What a great outfit. It's clothing. What else is it? It's a contractor. What does worship do? Why do we do it? Because it will rebuild this city. Not you, not me. What does this worship of this God do? Worship created by him. That literally, when we pray and praise, we reach into an eternal reality beyond all space and time and grab the very power of an eternal God. That's a lot of power. What does it do? It rebuilds cities. Do you, do you see where it gets to in that line? You see where it's beautiful. Result of the outpouring of this clothed, worshipful man is people are changed around him. Worship's like a contractor up for hire, and it rebuilds everything. 
Whole cultures are rebuilt, I think, because of the worship of the church. <laughs> Isn't that <sighs> What's the next image? It's an investor. <laughs> Did you see the double portion? It's there, it's there twice. And we know the doubling in Hebrew grammar implies perfection. And that's why the amen, amen of Christ is a, is a literary construction that's meant to communicate certainty. Oh, this is beautiful, right? Is it, what's, what, is, what is worship? It's an investor. Do you know what I think is the biggest cheat in the, uh, in the story of Aladdin? <laughs> I remember reading those stories as kids. And uh, uh, what, what, but there, there's a cheat. You're not allowed to ask for one thing. What are you not allowed to ask for when the genie gives you three wishes? What are you not allowed to ask for? More wishes. Yeah, because genies are limited. But my God is not. And he offers, if you will pray to be a woman of prayer or a man of prayer, to double you down. To double you down and increase. Everything I love about God is you get to ask for more wishes. (laughs) What are prayers? But wishes, wishes that are being asked of someone who can do. And so there's this idea that, that it increases itself and it multiplies itself. Then it becomes an immigrant song. Look at line 20. It is so strange where this goes. But why? why look at line 23. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the Isaiah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he knows he has a message. He knows it's going to change. And then all of a sudden, the, some of the people is changing are what? Immigrants. Immigrants to Palestine, which would be us. That we'd be the outsiders, the strangers. In the plans and purposes of God. Is it really tearing all the way across? Wow. It just let it go. It's on rope. It's not going to fall. There it goes. All right. All right. Carry on. Thank you. It was going to go sooner or later. It was going as I was preaching. That's awesome. I hope you have a sense of urgency then. <laughs> Might be an image there. That was the immigrant song. Christ's good message and the message of worship is an immigrant song, but not like Zeppelin's immigrant song. Our immigrant song is the inviting one. Do you know who that text is about? It's about Ebby. It's about Miguel. It's about Eric. Do you know when, do you know when McLaren got up here and prayed? You know what he did? He fulfilled the prophetic utterance of a primitive Palestinian in 800 BC. (laughs) He fulfilled it, and he fulfilled the glory of Christ, because strangers will do what? Strangers will come and minister in the kingdom. The Lord has fulfilled it. Do do you know know why I'm excited? Isaiah uttered this. Christ owned it. What do we get to do today? We get to own it again. It's our possession and promise, and we get to pray for it now. Finally, a family that prays together. God's promises are so big. Did you see them? 
In 938, their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. I don't want you to forget this, Adele and Peter. I don't want you to forget this, uh, McLaren and Madeline and Caleb, Janine, and if I'm missing any parents here, where's Frankie? Is Frankie? What is my, what is my encouragement, my excitement? These promises even protect families. Worship even protects generations to come. Worship even hedges and protects and surrounds and gives grace to your children. Praise Him. Let family worship be a priority for you. Why? Because worship will transform your family. Because what we are being promised in all these humble, beautifully humble, homey images is that we can take this transcendent God, we can take these transcendent notions of his greatness and his self-created worship, we can take these grand notions of his sovereign love, and we can boil them down to get on your knees every day and cry out and put on your worship clothes and praise him. I am bounded by time here. Isaiah 62, though. Woo! Do you know what the cash money is on this? It gets better and better and better. Because you know what happens in Isaiah 62? God says, I'm going to wear you as my crown. See how we come full circle here? He clothes us. He gives us worship. And then he loves us. He clothes himself in us. <laughs> Praise him. His amazing greatness. Let's pray. And oh, dear Father. We pray now in this place for the double portion of prayer of transformed hearts. I pray for our worship. Many of us are so slipshod about worship. I have been. And we don't, we dare to go outside without our worship clothes on and engage in life. Teach us, Father. Teach us how your worship, we can trust it. It builds, it it transforms, it binds families, it rebuilds cities. What is worship? Your worship. Teach us your worship. So that Christ may be glorified in this city and in our minds, imaginations, lies, families, words, and bodies. We pray this in Christ's name. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, This is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. When we come forward to this table and we grab these humble elements, we believe that God delivers eternal love and grace. To this end, and because of this reason, let me encourage you. <laughs> Let me encourage you. Run run to him. Run. I mean run. I mean run.
get the filling, do whatever you need to get, chase this. If you're a sinner, this is your hope. If you, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, you're, you'll notice in your heart, you begin to recognize that you want this because you need this and you know you need to be forgiven for who you are. That is worship. Hmm. Okay, so if you, if you're a sinner, this is your worship. Oh, but let me, uh, let me be, uh, let me, um, let me bar the way. Let me, uh, let me be harsh for a moment. Some of you are not worthy of this table. Some of you are not worthy of this table. And you're not worthy if you think you're a good person. You see, the Holy Spirit is not in you if you think you're a good man. And the Holy Spirit is not in you if you think you're a good woman. The Holy Spirit is in those who know they're sinners saved by grace. I'm sorry to tell you, if you're a good person, you are unworthy of this table. Isn't that weird? Some of you are skeptics. I know some of you uh, materialistically find the claims that an eternal God comes in this homey, humbly, hum, humble, homely, homey little avenue is crazy. That's okay. Uh, God will deal with you later. Just watch. Watch us. And he's after you. That's why you're here. But I was ominous. All right. So let's, let's, let's enjoy this. Let's enjoy this table. Will you please stand? And I'll ask you um, what you believe. These are, the, uh, these are the statements of faith that you were asked to assent to uh, in order to partake in the table. Uh, so I ask you, Christian brother and sister, what do you believe? Because I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting.